Wow. <laughs> Good morning. It's a joy to stand before you today. Uh, I'm so grateful for the very kind introduction. Um, commending words toward me, Shane, thank you for that, and I'm deeply humbled. We know this for sure, that there are some that plant, and there are some that water, but the Lord is the one who gives the increase. Amen? So I'm delighted. It's just an honor to stand before you. So you can expect that I'm going to be emotional, so just get used to that, okay? Um, I'm just going to have a a, a few moments that I've got to have beside myself. I'll step away and come back, and I'll rejoin you. but I really want to uh, just take some time this, this morning and just say how grateful I am for the work of the gospel uh, that not only continues, but is always at work in us. Um, we have had the privilege, Rebecca and I, in fact, Rebecca and Lindsay are here with me today, and we've come back many times to Faith Community to visit, and it's always been a joy just to meet many of you that we do know and many of you that we don't know. Um, so I, I'm so grateful, and the, the words that you have spoken to Rebecca and I have been so encouraging. Um, here's a moment. <laughs> Many of you that I don't know have said to me, thank you for stepping out in faith and helping to get this work started. And um, that's very humbling for me, and I just want to say thank you for sharing that. But I also want to say that it was not on my shoulders or by my feet alone that this church was planted. I look around and I see faces that I recognize, uh, Shane Kohler and Tara Book over here, who were in a premarital class with me and Rebecca, uh, Joel Teague and Kelly Farabee, before they got married in my college and career class that I was teaching, um, some of you in here that we performed the ceremony of, Randy and Kay Cook knowing them from years and years and years, and God mobilizing a group of people together around a vision, around a desire, around an idea of stepping out in faith and planting something in the earth that would bring glory to Christ ultimately and that would be centered upon the Word of God. And it's a joy to be able to come back 20 years later and that still be the reality and the truth. So I give praise to God for that. And I give thanks to many, many of you who've labored. Many of you saw those earlier pictures when I had a lot of hair, and now I don't have as much. Uh, But you saw the early pictures of where we we did some things that we just seemed to be unconventional. I mean, it was kind of a strange thing, going to a retreat center called The Land and planting a church. Uh, I think for some people, they felt like, where's the Kool-Aid? You know, where's this thing going? Uh, It felt a little strange and odd, which is part of really... The wonder of God's grace, isn't it, and his glory is that it's not about us, it's about the work that he's doing in us. And seeing Chris and Heather Aikens uh, here, and uh, I'm going to miss names like Mark and Melissa Ray and Angela and Travis Cuter that are here visiting, and the Costner, so many people that I just look around and see. Then I see your kids growing, it's just a a real joy. So again, I'm taking in a family moment, thank you for letting me have that space and time. I am going to preach the word today. But I want to say how thankful I am, and I'm grateful as uh, David Kemp and I sat at a table and we began praying over what would it look like if God would call us out to help plan a work. Well, we need elders, and um, we need to ask God to lead us in that way and and to begin to make us in that way of of leadership, and sure enough, the Lord called us out, and uh, David's first words to me, well, you you can't make me do anything, and I said, okay. Well, let's just keep at the table and pray and see what the Spirit says for both of us. And sure enough, the Spirit said, you need to go. So I'm so thankful for David and Cherie. And uh, we thought, what are we going to call this thing? And uh, well, Cherie said, this is a faith venture. We're trusting God by faith in this new thing. Um, Faith seems to be the thing that's undergirding everything that we're doing. And so hence the name faith. And then we said, you know, we want a, a church, a body of believers that are centered in the word, around the gospel, that are a community of people. In fact, our vision statement back in those days was way too long. Uh, Like most vision statements, they start off too long and they got to get narrowed down. But really having a community of believers that are under the rule of Christ, uh, that are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what really snapped the chalk line in our hearts, so to speak. And hence we ventured out on this journey called Faith Community Church. And I'm so thankful that we did. Shane was so kind to share the journey that I've been on for the past 20 years. 
And uh, when I heard that over again, as he was sharing kind of the, the timeline of my own life, I began thinking, I'm probably the most surprised person of all that God would place us in a place where we're planting our third church. Um, you don't really know what God's called you to do until you just start doing it and you trust him. So I kind of live in a rear view mirror kind of life. Uh, it, I'm slow. I just find myself in places and steps that I'm taking, and I look in the rearview mirror of providence, and I see that God's doing this, and he's done that, or he's defining this in me. I'm the most surprised person of all that God would use me to help in an apostolic kind of way be about planting churches and then working with more guys. It's either a calling or a sickness. I'm not sure which one that it is. I was joking there. That was really just... <laughs> I'm just trying to make it a little bit light here, too, you know. Um, it really is a joy, and it is a calling, and it's a great labor to see the work of the gospel being planted. Uh, and so for, for the past 14 years, we've had the joy of being in Charleston and having the blessing of being there. I want to say that 20 years ago, when we planted Faith Community, Rebecca and I looked at that oak tree in our front yard, and we said, you know what? We picture that oak tree getting so big that there's a tire swing that's going to be on one of the branches, and we're going to push our grandkids in that tire swing. And uh, about six years in, the Lord took our hearts and loosened our roots, and he called us from here, and he planted us in Charleston to see the work of the gospel continue in and through us. And it's been an incredible journey. And I want to thank the Lord for you. I want to thank the Lord for the leadership of this church that especially during that time of transition, when we weren't sure what God was doing in the process of pruning us like he does in his vineyard, or sifting us so that more fruit will come, that God's faithful. And uh, needless did we know that we would invest in a young guy over in Master's Seminary and help him through his tuition and send money to him and support him. And having a guy like Joel Teague on the team... Um, David Kemp and Randy and other leaders that stepped in the gap, God made it clear that he was calling a new leader here, and we didn't have to set up a search committee to try to find 100 resumes and figure it out. It was all just simply in the reality of who we were and multiplying ourselves through others and connections. And So I rejoice in that as well. I wish I could say I planned it that way, <laughs> but that's not the work, again, of our hands. It's the Lord's doing. However, I, I did, again, review mirror. I have kind of gathered some smarts along the way. And uh, three years ago, Rebecca and I had the privilege to plant Centerpoint Church with a teaching pastor right by my side. So Shane, I've kind of wised up and figured out I probably should follow that pattern since God started it with us. And now we have three years in, and this teaching pastor is now transitioning to the lead pastor of the church. I'm serving as an elder there. And so it's a real joy to see the pattern that God created here so I want to say to you before I just get into the word this morning is that as you all were standing kind of in cascading rows by different intervals of Faith Community Church, that picture is important, I believe, for us to see, and for me in particular, uh, that it's like we're part of a story, a book, and by each chapter that God's writing, he's writing something new, both in us and with us. So I want to encourage you, whatever interval part you've been in the chapters of this story, be encouraged. God's still writing, and he's still working. I mean, it's really interesting to come back to Faith Community Church and all the prayer and all the trust and all the ways that God put us on a piece of land, and now the land's gone and we're back at a school, <laughs> which I think is awesome because what it says is that faith continues to trust and believe, and growth continues to happen as the kingdom grows. You have to constantly adapt to what is God doing. Why? So that we don't get settled and secure in who we are or what we have done, but the work that God is doing in us and through us for the kingdom. And it can never be re reg regulated down to a building or a place. It's got to be in the people. And that's how we started this church. And uh, when I say we, again, the Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel in the hearts of faith-minded people. So thank you for the privilege to be here. Thank you for being a part of this foundation. I'm so glad I can go to the website and not find my name. That's a blessing. Many churches have pastors' pictures all along the hallway. We've been in all those churches before. It's never been designed to be built on one personality. Never. It's on the person of Christ and his word. So I can say that because I'm the founding pastor. And uh, I don't have to have my picture or my name on anything. It's really about his work and his kingdom in us, isn't it?
All right, so I'm going to do one more thing. Shane, please indulge me if you don't mind. And uh, you're going to feel like I'm a missionary showing you a slide presentation. Okay, so if I could show just a few pictures of our family, because God has worked through this church to shape the hearts of my children. Uh, Our oldest, Courtney, is part of a church plant. You can go ahead and pull those pictures up if you don't mind. Um, Courtney is a part of, and go ahead and scroll to the next picture. Here's the family picture. Um, That's me, obviously, on the left. Same coat, same clothes I've got on right now. Um, (laughs) Continuity, thought I'd coordinate that. All right, so uh, Rachel's uh, down to the front there, and then Lindsay, our twin girls. Uh, They were, Rebecca, they were three years old, right, when we planted? Four years old? Yep. Um, Rebecca, of course. And then then the middle there is Geraldine, my mother-in-law, Rebecca's mom. My mom wasn't with us that that night. Uh, Jordan's in the back behind her. That's our son, Jordan. And then his wife, Courtney, our daughter-in-law. And then our daughter, Courtney. And then our son-in-law, Adam. So we have two Courtneys now in the family. Uh, you can show the next picture. Um, so many of you ask about Grandmother Tuck on the right. She was part of this church plant when we started, and uh, she was a faithful uh, prayer warrior with us. She's uh, at home uh, with some heart conditions, but she's, her heart is strong in the Lord, and so we're grateful for her. Next slide. Again, we're trying to move along. So they came and met with us and said, hey, we've got a box for you. We open it up, and there's a bun in the oven. So we are expecting a grandparenting. So again, thank you all for indulging me for the moment here. Um, next picture. Um, this is a, a part of the process that I've been working on in Charleston. We have around 85 leaders every year. Some recycle through, some are new. And we do an eight-month process of training uh, for church planners and established pastors to talk about what does it mean to reach the city for the gospel. So this is one of our pictures. And another picture here next is something we've started downtown. It's an urban institute uh, working among uh, black pastors and leaders, and the joy it is to be able to invest there as well in Charleston. And so we have the opportunity to uh, see God work in, in many different cross-cultural environments. Another picture to show you is the recent uh, uh, commendation, I guess, an appointment for me as the director of missions um, in Charleston Baptist Association. Then another picture is where uh, God's been uniting our hearts downtown with uh, cross-cultural relationships. This is Brother Dallas Wilson. He's been in the city for 40 years. Uh, everyone knows Brother Dallas, and he's a dear brother. He and I are partnering together. Brother Dallas is joining our staff in the fall, and I'm so delighted to have an older man continue to teach and mentor me as well as mentor our team. Then another picture is a picture of the church that we're meeting in currently, Center Point Church. Uh, meets in this facility. When Shane saw it, he says, man, you got a great building. And I thought, don't you know I'm a church planner? I borrow everything. It's not my building. <laughs> we are meeting in an old 1854 church downtown Charleston called Citadel Square Baptist Church. The next picture is our congregation gathering for worship there. This congregation um, has been led by a pastor for the past 10 years that has struggled in this downtown environment. Uh, there are about 40 people in the congregation sitting on two or three pews in this 800-seat auditorium. And God has blessed us with the opportunity to come and share that space. And this is a final picture of a prayer gathering we had with appointing new church planters in the city of Charleston to plant more churches. Um, City of Charleston, I think that's all the pictures. Um, The city of Charleston is a historic city, as you know. There are 45 people every day moving into the greater Charleston area. By the year 2028, there will be over a million people living in our small, coastal, historic town. Um, What that does for me is it fuels my heart for the need for planting more churches that are gospel-centered to reach more people. I'm grateful for industries like Boeing that have brought in a lot of people from all around the country as well as the world. Many of them have no faith background at all. And so what was started here in me, the chapter, has continued to fuel my heart and soul for more of the gospel reality. And I want to talk about that today in my message about fruit that remains. Fruit that remains. I'm going to borrow a word from Jesus in John 15, but we're going to read out of John chapter 12. So I don't think the Lord will mind I'm doing that. So fruit that remains. If you turn to John chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 20 to verse 26. And I'd like to spend just a little bit of time just pointing out some gospel realities that I think are pertinent for us today. As a church, 20 years into it or three years into it, the reality of the gospel at work in us is so important. 
Fruit that remains in our lives in ministry comes through a process. Jesus taught it this way in John 15, even though we're not going to look there. He talked about it in the realm of the idea of pruning. Why are we pruned? Well, for more fruit. Wheat every year is sifted so that the wheat can come away from the chaff and the husks that hold it so that life will come from that as a seed. And those two realities, those farming analogies, are important for us to remember that every year there are times and seasons that happen. And every year there's a time to plant, there's a time to water, and there's a time to sow that which is planted. Harvest, rather, that which is planted. So I want to point that out to you as a way of thinking around this idea about how does fruit remain in our lives in the gospel. And I believe it comes by the fact that we are constantly being pruned, we are constantly being sifted, so that all those things that attach to our faith will be stripped away so the seed, the purity of the seed of the gospel can grow deeper and deeper in us and give life to many. For the first time, Jesus talked about the harvest in many ways, but for the first time, he referenced himself as being a part of that harvest. So look with me in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Philip went and told Jesus. Sorry, Andrew and Philip went to tell Jesus. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning and for the joy it is to remember your faithfulness and the work of your hands Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and the grace of the gospel. This is your word, and we ask today that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see you and to see the word of God and the gospel for us today. And we'll be thankful, Lord, for what you will accomplish in this time. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that you've granted me to stand before these brothers and sisters in Christ and speak the word. I pray that my words would be few and that yours would be many for the sake of your kingdom and the good of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's four realities I want to point out to you out of this text that I think are important for us to note. And in the text, I'd like to point out some things that are personal and application that I think for us to look at. It also will go back to me referring to the chapter of the book that's being written in a providential way. The four things are these. Seeking God's glory and our good in Jesus is the first thing. Four gospel realities that bring about fruit that remains. The first one, seeking God's glory and our good in Jesus. Very important. Secondly is seeing Jesus as our sacrificial substitute. Seeing Jesus as our sacrificial substitute. Thirdly, sifting through functional saviors. Sifting through functional saviors. And then lastly, serving Jesus as our ultimate satisfaction, serving Jesus as our ultimate satisfaction. If you look back with me in verse 20, the Word of God's speaking here. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the the feast were some Greeks. Now, what was happening in this text, if you read verses 1 through 19, is that it was a time for Passover, and many were coming into Jerusalem to worship. They were coming to glorify God and to worship Him. So we get into the text here where it says many were coming and some of those were Greeks. So these came to Philip and they asked him, sir, we want to see Jesus. What's interesting is you look through verses 1 through 19 in this text, you'll find there are many people that were looking for Jesus for many reasons. Some were to worship him. Some were just enamored by what he had already done and the miracles that he had accomplished. And then there were some certainly that wanted to bring harm and 
somehow dissuade crowds from following him. And so you have this mix of a story happening that's bubbling up. It probably was a point in time in Jesus' ministry when his public ministry was at an ultimate pinnacle to where it would seem that if the kingdom of God was coming and going to be established on the earth, that this would be the time when he would simply bring it down and make it happen. And as we know, the kingdom of God is not relegated to man's plans or desires or ingenuity, but it's always in the hands of God and how he accomplishes his will. So there was a lot of misguided perspectives that were happening as you look through this narrative and read through it. So when we read this, we'll look with me in verse 22, that Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And then Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you want to pause there for a moment, don't look at verse 24 again. Just think about this reality. The hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, Philip and Andrew are going to Jesus to think, Jesus is going to come out and speak to all these Greeks that are coming in to talk with him. After all, the Greeks seek after wisdom. And so maybe Jesus was given another teaching on the kingdom of God, or maybe he was going to reveal what the kingdom of God would mean in this moment when his public ministry is coming to this seemingly pinnacle point. Well, if you look at the narrative, we can see that God was bringing glory to himself through Jesus, which is his ultimate aim. Many were seeking Jesus for many reasons. If you look in verse 2 of chapter, chapter 12, you'll see that Jesus was being honored at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. It says they were honoring him with a dinner. So here's a setting where Jesus is having, if you will, a miracle appreciation dinner given by Martha over the fact that her brother who is dead is now alive, and, and here's Lazarus just reclining at the table. I mean, it's a really interesting picture to think about that Jesus is being honored in this place, and here is the one who was resurrected, and they were in this house, and it was an honor for them. And then Mary goes, and she takes the ointment, the precious ointment, and breaks it and anoints the feet of Jesus. And so Jesus is being lauded and honored for who he is and what he has done. Uh, this is a pinnacle miracle in Jesus' ministry to raise someone from the dead. And of course, Jesus made it very clear that this raising from the dead of Lazarus was not for his glory, but for God's glory and to display the reality of who he was so that all would see him. Well, it says in the text that the crowds were coming to see Jesus, not just because he was there as a teacher, but because he had done this incredible miracle. So you have a private honoring of Jesus going on. And then you look in verse 9, that a large crowd of Jews were coming to Passover to see Jesus and, of course, the one that he raised from the dead. So there's a lot of interest being drawn in. And it says in verse 11 that because of this, many were believing and putting their faith in who Jesus was. Then you move to verse 12 to 15. And now there's a public display, if you will, a parade that was set up in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday when Jesus was lauded and the, prophet, the prophecy was spoken about him coming in on a colt and being honored. So you get this idea that this thing is bubbling up to a point where something big is going to happen. There's going to be a moment beyond even Lazarus' resurrection that will display the kingdom of God to all of God's people and at all times at a Passover festival. In verse 19, the enemies that were trying to thwart the crowds from going to see Jesus, it says that they said that the whole world has gone after him. Then verse 20, we come to the large crowd of Greeks pressing in to see Jesus. So do you see the picture with me of what's happening here? If you do, just kind of nod your head at me. Good, I'm, I'm glad. I was wondering if you all could see what I see. I'm sure it's the word of God, so it's right there. But I just want to make sure we're communicating. Thank you very much. So I want to point this out that because as we look at this, you would think, okay, Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is going to come out and do something even more spectacular. But that's not what glory is all about, is it? In fact, the word glory is used over 80% more in John's gospel than in any gospel combined. If you reduce the idea of glory, it means this, to make someone or something known for all their worth, to make them known. So when we look at God's glory and we look at God's kingdom, we often look at it through the lenses of our own humanity and our own perspectives, our own way of discerning. And instead, Jesus didn't come out and start speaking to these Greeks and giving more wisdom to them. He spoke words that really seemed to be antithetical 
to what the whole movement that was swirling around Jesus at the time was happening. I love how John Piper helps us in this idea where he says that God's glory and our good are never at odds with each other. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Those words ring true to this day from the first day I read that. That is so true. But it's important when we think about God's glory and our good that it has to be seen in Jesus. In Jesus. Meaning this, if we quote Romans 8.28 and we hold to that as a promise, you can't quote that passage and leave out verse 30. You've got to give all of 28, 29, and 30 because the working together of God's glory and our good have to be combined and centered into the person of Christ. And so that's what Jesus was doing, is really displaying who he was, not what he was going to do for the people. You know, this working together is a, quite a process. When we planted Centerpoint Church a few years ago, there was a groundswell in my life of helping other churches get planted. And the church that I was working at and serving at, I had approached them to say, I really believe God's calling us to plant a church in Charleston, but we want to be sent out and uh, working on that team and that church and working with other churches in the city. There were many churches in the city that had that vision that shared with me and Rebecca and some folks in our church. And the church that I was serving at didn't have the same vision. And I thought, this is an opportunity to give God's glory. It's going to be for our good. Let's do this thing together. And it didn't happen that way. But what happened is that we had the opportunity to go and plant and be sent out by other churches in the city in a good relationship with the one I was at, leaving in a good way. But it was against what I thought was best. I thought where I was was going to be a place to be launched out. And that expectation from that time changed. So three years ago... There were symptoms going on with me physically, and I went to the doctor and was diagnosed with bladder cancer. So I thought, Lord, I thought this was for your glory and for my good. I I don't see how that's defined in the plan here. But every time, whenever there's a plan that doesn't seem to go the way that you expect it to go, the reality is when you come back to the point that it's all in Jesus... And whatever God's doing in us to work together those two realities, it is always going to be to conform us to the image of his son. So Rebecca said to me, God's got this. We can trust him. I hit a wall. I did. I, I thought, Lord, I'm, I'm going out to do your work. I'm going to help plant another church. I want to see the kingdom of God come in our city. And a wall. And I think that that's important for us to realize that God's glory and our good always work together, but they always work together for the purpose of conforming us to the image of his son. And the way that goes about is not always the way that we think or plan. You leave a piece of property on Arnold Mill Road and you're coming back to another school, second school after that property. That's an amazing thing. But God's glory and his good is at work in you. So let that work continue, but make sure that you see the gospel in it. So man's aim is always what's best for me, and we have to make sure that we see the glory of God and our good that are not at odds with each other, but they're always conforming us to the image of Jesus. And that's what we see when Jesus responds to Philip and Andrew in verse 24. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the illustration here that Jesus is using is that of a piece of wheat out of a... Um, all right, so I need Mark Ray up here. Help me with how to describe the wheat and all that. But Mark, you can stay there. You don't have to come up. A kernel of wheat comes out of a husk, and in that husk, that wheat kernel is surrounded by chaff or a sheath. That process of getting that wheat kernel out of that husk is arduous. You grab, gather the sheaves, and you have to bang it so that the wheat kernel comes out, but there's still a process by which that kernel has to have the outer removing of the chaff removed in order for the kernel to be ready to be made for harvesting, for bread, other things, flour. But then there's another process. That kernel has to be broken down even more if you're going to take that one kernel and use it for the sake of planting more wheat. It's got to die. It's got to come to the place where the wheat and the germ and all the stuff, you talk to Mark Ray after the service, he'll explain it to you. But it breaks down to the point where it goes into the earth and it is, it's, it's, it's palpable in order to bring forth more wheat. 
What's interesting is Jesus is giving this metaphor. He's talking about the impact of one grain of wheat that will bring forth much fruit. You see the difference? One grain, many fruit. For example, two bushels of seed planted in a farming acre will yield 40 to 50 bushels of grain, which is about 250, 2,500 rather, loaves of bread. 2,500 loaves of bread. Jesus is one kernel of wheat offered for the world. He could be the only kernel that could be offered to give us redemption and bring forth fruit of redemption for us. So instead of Jesus coming out with this incredible story or teaching or miracle, he says, one kernel of wheat will die. And he's talking about himself. In other words, the kingdom of God comes not in power or in strength according to man's will, but according to God's will, it comes for his glory and for the good of of his people. So the falling to the ground and that kernel dying is a very important image to look at. It's really a winnowing process that Jesus taught many times in using judgment passages, that the chaff would be moved from the wheat, and the wheat that would remain are those that are true in the family of God that are regenerate, and those that are chaff would be blown away like the wind, and it would be used for burning and fire. And, but he's using this image of himself to say that that kernel of wheat being me must be offered. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God, we might be made in that righteousness, that new righteousness. So the removing of the husks and the chaff is a sifting process. I think Paul helps us the most in this imagery when he says that Jesus set aside his divine privilege in Philippians chapter 2. He laid it aside, and he took upon the form of a servant, even to a slave to death on the cross. It's amazing when we think about the work of the gospel. Only Jesus could be the seed for salvation. Only that seed could be hidden in the ground and life come forth because of who he was. Not because of a claim that he was looking for, but because of the reality that he knew it was time for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's not how we would define or write the script, but that's how God defined and wrote the script for us. You see, we needed access to a holy God to be made right before him. Without Jesus making a way to be acceptable in his sight, we do not have access to God. And we bide alone. But because Jesus died for us and offered his life as a ransom for many, he provides a perfect, pure righteousness that is only received through faith and through the death to our own seeking of self-righteousness or sin-righteousness. Seeing Jesus in this way is like seeing a hidden seed that you don't see, but you see the manifestation of it. Faith Community Church was planted as a seed into the earth And not many of you saw that seed being going into the ground. But from that seed has come life and a harvest and fruit and fruit that remains. Our prayer is that 20 years later, maybe I'll be in a walker and I'll come up here and speak. Who knows? But 20 years later, there'd be a reality that more people will be impacted by the gospel. And many of you that were kids in those earlier pictures are leading the church or planting other churches through Faith Community Church. Who knows? what God has in store. But we know this for sure, is that the work of the gospel and the work that Christ has started in us, he will complete it to the day of his redemption. And we have hope in that. You know, one show that my mom and I, now that she's more home often, is one show I watch with her a lot is Undercover Boss. Have you seen that show before, Undercover Boss? I think Shane's getting nervous because he's wondering, how does Undercover Boss and the seed of Jesus in our redemption even connect? But just hang with me for a moment, and I'll explain. Hopefully, it'll make sense. My kids always warn me, Dad, don't use too many analogies and metaphors. They get lost, and you just kind of lose it. So hopefully, that's not true. Undercover Boss is a story of a boss that goes undercover in a company to be able to sort out uh, how his company's doing. And he's hidden, uh, inconspicuously, but he works among the people. So he takes on some of the menial tasks of cleaning toilets to doing whatever's got to be done to understand how the company's working and those that are doing it, how they're performing. 
Well, during this time, I'm letting the first part of the show go, and mom's just watching it, and she's waiting. We're both waiting for the moment at the very end where the boss reveals himself to a number of employees that come in front of him, and some of them, you're kind of going, all right, finally, this guy's going to get it. He's going to be thrown out. You know, it's going to be awesome. That's not how we react, though. Um, We wait for that moment when the employees that had very little through tragedy, that they're awarded out of grace and out of mercy from this boss, this CEO, something they didn't deserve necessarily, but they're granted something that they didn't know they would ever get, and it's awarded to them. Not necessarily, some of it because of merit, but most of it's got a compassion and desire and love to bless the people that are working in that company. Well, so at that time, I'm looking over at mom. She's looking at me, and we're both tearing up. You know, it's getting a real emotional moment. Are you all with me on that? Do you follow what I'm saying? All right, so watch the show. You may get the analogy. The point I'm making is the reality is that in, in the deepest reality of all that God is for us, Jesus came into our humanity, and many did not see him, but those that did see him, he became life to them. But to his very own, his people, he came, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. In John chapter 1, it says that they rejected him in such a way that they never experienced life. But all who did believe in him, all do who did believe in him and put their faith in him, receive life eternal. No human illustration can capture the reality of God's incarnation for us. But I think we can see redemptive stories all along the journey in our life in different ways where we see God displaying the person of Christ in ways that redemption and mercy and grace are displayed for his children and for his people. Seeing Jesus as our sacrificial substitute is very important because if we don't look at Jesus as our only substitute, our heart is pulled away to search after idols. In fact, Tim Keller says it this way, that the heart is an idol factory. We are drawn to pursue things that become other substitutes for us. And what happens is the gospel remains only as news to us in our ears, but it doesn't remain as good news for us every day. And see, when we share the gospel with people that are far from God but close to us, we're sharing the gospel so that they can hear the gospel, not just to be news in their ears. Many of them may have known about Jesus coming and dying and who he was, but it doesn't mean that it's good news to them. So we have to keep sharing the gospel, keep planting the seeds until they can see the gospel is good news for them. I say to you as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, that the gospel has to remain for us as good news. In other words, the gospel is still redeeming parts of our lives. We're being transformed from faith to faith, right? So many times we will want to hold on to Jesus, but then put our hope in something that becomes an idol in addition to who Jesus is, we put our trust and dependence on those realities. Only Jesus can be the one by which we put our faith in. So see, seeing Jesus, we must see him as our substitute and our Savior, not just for salvation. And so Jesus is moving from this picture of him being the wheat put into the earth, and then he goes into verse 25 and begins explaining that this was an example as well for all who would follow him. Now, he only could be that kernel of wheat in the ground to bring redemption, but he was giving an example by which we also must come and believe. We don't receive the gospel by the way of us working for it. We come and die first. Self-will has to die. If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So there is a reality of death that has to happen in us as well in order to receive the seed of eternal life and the hope of eternal life. In fact, Peter says it this way, To this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the Lord begins to move them to a place where they see that they themselves must also go through a sifting or a pruning process in order for them to really be connected to him. Look in verse 25 with me. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life 
in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's a sifting that has to happen in our lives when we come to faith in Christ. And I might say this as well. There's a constant sifting and a constant pruning of the things that want to attach to our faith that begin to call for an allegiance from us to other things besides Christ. You see the extreme words that he uses? If you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you hate your life, then you'll keep it for eternal life. You see that sifting, winnowing process that's happening there where there's a reality of us constantly being called to a place where we're trusting in the one who alone can be our affection. So these functional saviors that happen through our lives happen because we are drawn away. In fact, Jerry Bridges helps us with this idea. He says, sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, our security, our significance, because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They occupy and preoccupy our minds and consume our time and resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. So he's speaking to those who are his followers. I'm going to be glorified. I'm a kernel of wheat that must go into the ground. And if you are going to follow me, then you can't love your life either. Why? Because that's where we have hope. That's where we have real life. That's where we have life made new. Jesus shifts from being the grain of wheat to really the farmer who takes his winnowing fork and begins to divide those who are just simply coming to him for something else other than really who he is. God's glory and our good are wrapped up in the person of Christ. Pain is always a part of the process for us. An author wrote recently that I read, often the difference between where I am and where God wants me to be is the pain that I'm willing to endure. So as followers of Christ, we must look to Jesus as not only just the one who redeemed us, but as our example by the way that we're to live our life. No one knew this better than Peter himself. In fact, Jesus said to Peter these words, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that interesting that Jesus didn't say, Simon, I have prayed for you. I have bound Satan from you. You're good to go. He said, I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. In other words, you're going to go through a winnowing, sifting process. And when it is over, turn again to me and go and strengthen your brothers. That is the Christian life. It is. There are things that are going to call our hearts away and our affections. There are things that will call the church away from what's most important because it will help gather more people. It will make the church be more stronger. Couldn't agree more. The reality is we have to be drawn to the person of Christ. And there's a winnowing process. Every year, you have to cycle through wheat. You have to cycle through the vineyard. You've got to prune and you've got to plant and you've got to harvest. And the same thing's true in our life every year. So whether it's cancer that comes into your story or whether it be a relocation and a move and you're not sure what church you'll be part of, whether it be you don't know how long you'll be in this space, you don't know how long those drawings will be finished, you'll know how long the next step of the financial increment will come so that you can take a step on the property. Those are all process of God winnowing down the reality of where we put our affections. So if we love our life, characteristically... We're going to lose it. And if we hate our life, the extreme words, we're keeping it for, in other words, we're showing ourselves that we're on the path of eternal life. Just like Christian on Pilgrim's Progress, he had to keep moving with that burden on his back. I need to wrap up here, but I, I want to say that the church, this is an important message for the church, this winnowing reality about 
two years ago, there was a church that called me in Charleston, and it's in a rural area called Awendaw. It's an Indian name of a rural town. Awendaw has a population maybe of 30,000 people. And the leaders called me and said, we know that you help plant churches, and our church is dying, and we need to have an option. Can you help us? So I met with these six elderly people that walked in with their walkers and their canes, and they said, we just don't want this church to die on us. Can you help? And I said, well, let's see what God would do. Brought in two other churches that were stronger around them. We met at a table, realized that the church had come to the place where their kernel of wheat really was dying, which was good in one way because new life needed to come. The church was riddled with a bad history from moral failures of pastors to being racist in a predominantly black community. This white church was struggling and losing its way and its identity in the gospel, gone. And that church needed to die. That kernel wheat needed to go on the ground. And so we closed the church with the view of relaunching it like the gospel does and giving it a new name, a new identity with a new church planner. And I want to tell you, not every story goes this way, but God put the right people in place to bring about a new life. Chris Hamill, a young man that was part of our training process, I said, Chris, we need you you in Ondal. You've got a heart for all people, that you believe the gospel is without discrimination for all people. We need you and your leadership to lead this church. He came they relaunched the church last Easter Sunday. I wish I had pictures to show you. I should have brought them. But in the past year, they have baptized more people of different races than they have in the past 20 years of the church's existence. And that's a testimony of the reality of what the gospel does in the life of a people that says it's not about us and we have to not love our lives and what we want but we need to look at what does eternity need and what does the gospel need for this to change. I want to tell you those six elderly people are still part of that congregation. And they love Jesus. And God's doing a great work through this church at Seawee Bay in Allendaw, South Carolina. It's a testimony of what God does in the life of the church that says it's not about us. We must see Jesus as our sacrificial substitute. We must also deal with the functional saviors that need to be sifted from our life. And lastly, we see in verse 26 the words of Christ for us. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Spiritual activity must always be preceded by spiritual identity. Spiritual activity must always be preceded by spiritual identity, meaning this, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, but it's also God's purpose in us as believers. So he says here, if anyone serves me characteristically, then he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Do you see the fruit in this? Jesus says, where I am, there you'll be. There's no other greater reward than to know that we're no longer separated from God, but that we are in Christ and in his family. So he's saying, you'll be with me. And then he says this, that the Father himself will honor you, meaning that you're in the family. And when you're in the family, you never leave the family. And that's not from Marlon Brando either. That's from Jesus. You're in the family. You're in the family. You know, something happened with Rebecca and I a few years ago. I, I began to realize that there was some idol worship in my heart. I've been in ministry now 30 years. And I always was used to leaving my driveway and going to the church or going to Starbucks or going to wherever we'd meet people and we'd do discipleship and we'd do ministry. And that's all good. And that's, I understand that's the process of a pastor. And you get ready for Sunday. But God convicted us of something that we never really expected And that was all the people we pass every time we come in and out of our subdivision. And one day the Lord just convicted us and began asking ourselves the question, who lives in our cul-de-sac? Do I know their names? And Rebecca and I said, well, I think we know the names of our cul-de-sac, but the rest of the street, there's no clue. Well, we've been there 10 years. So we got a notice in the mail saying that our mailbox post needed painting. Now, we do keep up our house, so I want you to think it's in disrepair. We've never won yard of the month, but nonetheless, we, we keep things in 
perspective. So you live in a subdivision, you get a note like that. Everyone's got to paint their mailbox post the same color. You know how it goes. So Rebecca works for a painting company doing bookkeeping. And so she says, I can get a gallon of paint. That's easy. So we decided to, to walk the walk of shame down our street one Saturday, <laughs> offering us to paint every mailbox post and meet our neighbors for the purpose that God had changed us. And it came to realization that I did not pick my neighbors, God did. And I don't know their names. And if I'm going to live on mission with God, and if the gospel is going to have purpose in me, not just to redeem me and me do professional ministry, then it's got to begin with how we live our lives along even our street. So house by house, we're painting mailbox, of course, asking first, painting mailbox posts, People are coming out to meet us saying, man, that's so kind. Thank you. We got the letter too, and that's great. What's your name? Oh, my name is Craig. This is Rebecca. We've lived here for 10 years, and I'm sorry. Good to meet you. You know, it's this shame that we felt, but there was something also liberating for us, and that is that we wanted to get to know who they were. So this was like in November, and so we decided, you know what? We're going to take it another step further. We know names now. We've got addresses. Let's invite our neighbors into our house for a holiday dessert. So we thought, well, we'll see how it goes. Probably five families will come out of the 14 that live down our street. And did you know that every family except for two who were out of town came into our house? It blew us away. And what it made us realize is that people long for community. They want to be part of something connected with people. It's, it's built in us to have community. So God began using that as a way of us seeing who we live our lives out in gospel purpose among our neighbors. And it's changed the way that we interact with people on our street. We know them by name. We're praying for them. One couple that we didn't think ever would warm up or come close to even connecting with us are now some of our best friends. And when we have opportunity, we share the gospel. We speak out of the gospel in our lives and how it's at work. And I say that to you to say this. God does not call us to be a church just simply to gather, but really to be the church, to be missionary disciples where we live, work, and play. And that's what I teach church planners out of this reality for myself, is that we're called not just to get a stage and a platform and chairs and a space, we're called to take this Sunday gathering and mobilize ourselves out because every man, woman, and child needs to have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. They need to see that you died and you became alive in Christ. They need to see that they must also come to that place to have life in Jesus. So the gospel is not just news to them, it becomes good news to their soul when you say that there is life and there is hope, and there is healing in Jesus' name. When they see in you working through whatever tragedy, whatever winnowing process that God does in you, they see in you a reality that draws them in that they desperately need, a peace that passes understanding, a hope that will endure all things. You see what he says here? Jesus says that my Father will honor him, the one who serves me. Martha, Mary, all the list of people before this passage in chapters, verses 1 through 19, people were pursuing Christ for many different ways to try to find Jesus and try to find honor from him. But he said, the only way you can do that is by serving me and being with me. It's a relationship. It is not an activity. From dishonor to honor, just a few blocks away, I'll close with this, a few blocks away, in the church downtown that we're at, Charleston is a, obviously a very historic town, as you know. There's a circular church about three blocks down from the church that we're meeting at. Back in the 1700s, it was called the Independent Presbyterian Church. In 1749, there was a seafaring captain that sat into, in that congregation um, and listened to a young pastor by the name of Josiah Smith proclaim the gospel, and he talked about the grace of God in Christ. This seafaring captain grew up in a British family with a godly mother and an irreligious seafaring father. His mother died when he was six years old. Left mainly to himself, he became a debauched sailor, a miserable outcast on the coast of West Africa for two years, a slave-trading sea captain until an epileptic seizure ended his career. He wrote this of himself. He said this, I was... 
capable of doing anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, so as far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. Just before arriving in Charleston, a storm at sea wakened him from his folly, and the work of the Spirit began working in his heart. And as a young adult, to the very end of his age at 82, it marked the day that he had an awakening of this horrendous trade that he was a part of, and he, he repented of it. But he was on his way. So after arriving in Charleston, he wandered around the oaks down on the peninsula, pondering the grace of God that he just heard from this young preacher, Josiah Smith, talking about the grace of God. And he wrote his own epitaph to capture the wonder of his conversion and his undeserved ministry. Here's what he said. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Signed, John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Just a few blocks away from the church that I'm at. See, the grace of God is the power of God for us. Our church parking lot shares the parking lot with the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. And many of you know exactly what happened there just not long ago. Of a tragedy that took place and the taking of lives of the pastor of that church as well as parishioners and people coming to church. But do you see the response that these families had to this incredible tragedy? They released the gospel of grace to this murderer and released grace in the gospel to our city. There's no reason why Charleston should not have had burned streets and cars and buildings destroyed. There's no reason from a human perspective. But there's two things that happened. One is that the grace of the gospel worked in such a way that these people responded through the grace of God, extending forgiveness to the very one who took the lives of their loved one. But the second thing that happened that not many people know is that there are many godly black pastors that were calling their congregations and people in the city to say, you will not react to this tragedy. We are going to respond by the grace of God in this. So not many people know that, but I know those pastors that made those calls that said, we're going to be a city that responds and puts our city as a light on a hill to shine the reality that even in hate and murder and tragedy, that the grace of God prevails. And I rejoice to say that God has somehow in some mysterious providence placed our congregation in that space neighboring this great church, this hurting church. And from that, God has put into our souls a desire to see the multi-ethnic gospel display itself through our congregation. We're in a building that was built in 1854. J.P. Boyce, the founder of Southern Seminary, preached the commissioning service for that church building when it was first built by 20 families that invested $175,000. They built an 800-seat sanctuary. That was the first building. How about that, Shane? First building, 800-seat sanctuary. And most of it was built on the back of slaves that sat on the balcony. Incredible injustices. Every time I walk in that building, it just grips my soul to think that we have an opportunity. We cannot change the past, but we can redeem all things because of the grace of God in us. So I'm asking you to pray for our church. I'm going to ask that we pray for Faith Community Church. In 1997, there was a great risk that was taken. Many families elevated God's glory over their own good and said, we'll go out in faith. Even trusting in this guy who didn't have a seminary education, I don't know how he preaches, but let's go for it and see what happens. But we were called to a vision and to a calling together. So that same reality will drive this church forward, that same reality of trusting in Christ, but it will cost you and us something year after year after year. But in that, we have the great joy and hope that we know that eternity is ours in Jesus and that God is working his glory and our good in him to make us more like him. So the question comes for us when Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Has Christ been glorified and made known to you? How is Jesus being glorified for your good? How 
has the hour come that you see Jesus clearly and the husks of unrighteousness and of self-righteousness and of sin-righteousness has to constantly be stripped from us because we're drawn back into the reality of our functional saviors. We have to look to Jesus and say, Lord, be glorified. Has faith in him alone come alive in your heart today and you're ready to follow him? Whatever that is, the gospel's good news for us and the power of Jesus' righteousness is far greater than the power of our unrighteousness. So as the sifting goes on, the power of the gospel is at work. My prayer is that even 20 years later from now, that the fruit that remains in your lives and in this church would continue. And maybe God will have me in heaven at that time and I'll rejoice with you there or from there. But the reality is we're part of something that will not fail. I hope you know that. Jesus loves his church more than we ever could. It's his bride. His kingdom is coming on the earth through his church. So stay faithful, trust, let the winnowing fork of the Holy Spirit bring you to a place that you can say, Lord, because I was pruned, because I was sifted, more fruit has come. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your word is our hope and our strength. We thank you that the word is truth for us today. I pray, God, that you would take the words that have been spoken today from your word I pray, God, that you'd use it for your glory, for the good of your people. Thank you for Faith Community Church. Thank you for Pastor Shane Kohler, and thank you for the leadership, for the elders and the staff. God, I pray your blessings on them, and I thank you for the joy. It is to commend them to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, who alone receives all the glory and the praise. And God, we thank you that in your glory and our good, that they are mingled together for your kingdom purposes in us. So we pray you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.